to be his evil genius. Or would have believed it, did not genius suggest a high intelligence, which Harris didn't have. But there would be no more of them. So far as Mr Brett was concerned, they were the end of their line. Harris had only a quantity of sisters, and Bostock was a single child, so Mr Brett thought that even his parents were appalled by what they'd done and would do no more. Ten minutes of the lesson remained, and Mr Brett struggled on with the customs of ancient Sparta. A fat boy at the back was actually asleep with his mouth open. Mr Brett had a childish desire to throw an ink pellet into it, but did nothing of the kind. The fat boy was a boarder at ninety pounds per annum, and so worth three day pupils. Not for worlds would Mr Brett have risked Dr Bunyan's anger, and therefore his situation. He was desperately anxious to remain. Desperately. "'Beg pardon, sir?' said Harris, cupping an ear, and leaning forward earnestly. "'Can't quite hear you. Could I have that last item again?' There was an unwholesome light in Harris's eyes. Uneasily, Mr Brett wondered what could have been the cause of it. He hoped it was a fever, as he didn't care to think of it being an idea. "'Little children,' repeated Mr Brett, as softly and tenderly as he could, "'quite tiny infants, exposed on the mountainside by their parents.' Harris nodded shrewdly, and Mr Brett caught himself wondering why the custom was ever abandoned. He would like to have lived in ancient Sparta, or, better, he would have liked Bostock and Harris to have lived there. As these thoughts drifted into his mind, the bell rang, and thunder from aloft proclaimed that Dr Bunyan's religious instruction had finished for the day. Then all the little academy rocked and shook as Major Alexander's twelve rose from arithmetic in the back parlour and all the six-and-thirty sons of merchants and gentlefolk tumbled fiercely out into the five o'clock sun. Even the fat boarder had gone, not to join his friends, for he had none, but to the kitchen, and Mr Brett was left alone with his strange secret. The unearthly light was still in Harris's eyes. Bostock noticed it and held his tongue. There was no point in interrupting his friend's thoughts. He would be told of them when Harris was ripe. They lived in neighbouring streets, about a mile and a half from the school, so there was time enough. As they walked, the sun streamed down and gave them immense shadows which fell like black phantoms among the half-built houses that littered their way, as if haunting them prematurely with the ghosts of tragedies to come. Their pace was slow, their manner winding, but sedate. There was no hurry. After some minutes of silence, Bostock stole a glance at his friend, but it was plain that Harris's thoughts were still in the furnace and at white heat. So Bostock scowled and punched an imaginary enemy. He was angry. He was often angry. It was part of his nature. Fits of anger came over him like waves of the sea, till he longed to hiss and seethe and hurl stones like the sea itself. 
His father was a retired sea captain, and he put it all down to that. Harris at once explained it to him, this notion of inherited passion, and Bostock had nodded fiercely, feeling at one with the elements. Harris's father, on the other hand, was a learned physician, so Harris was able to explain his own advanced manner of thinking in the same way. They suited each other very well, did Bostock and Harris. Each had what the other lacked, and was always ready to part with it. Harris with his powerful mind, and Bostock with his powerful limbs. In a way, they represented the ancient idea of soul and body, but in a very pure state. Harris was as weak as a kitten, and Bostock was as thick as a post. They were the greatest of friends, and had the utmost respect for each other.